One of the reasons I wanted to do the handout is because this is um, the second part, if you will, of um, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And as I mentioned the, the previous time when I did part one, if you're going to steal material, why not steal the best, right? So I went for the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, probably the best-known sermon of all time. Um, some of you might have missed it. Well, you know what? I should have got one of those sheets myself. Oh, well, I kind of remember what I said. Um, this is just kind of an outline, if you will, of the basic overview of the sermon. Oh, Skip, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, in the first half of the sermon, we went through the um, characteristics of those who will be in the kingdom, the Beatitudes, and I wrote them all out here for you. Then we looked at the section on, you know, your purpose in life, and then we looked at what I call the sermon's core, and I'll call it for today the sermon's core part one, which was the greater righteousness. And uh, Jesus had six points, and he went through each one of them, kind of going through and, and, and making it plain and clear how a person writes God's law on their heart and on their mind. And for those of you who have the top line on your page, the message of the Sermon on the Mount, I've tried to boil it down. Uh, it is preparing yourself for the coming kingdom. So those of you who don't have the first line on your page, you can just write that in. Prepare yourself for the coming kingdom. So with that said, today we'll look at the second part of the Sermon on the Mount. So the title today would be Sermon on the Mount, Part 2, A Look into the Ministry of Jesus Christ. To do that, again, if you have the outline, um, you'll see down just below the middle of the page, Greater Righteousness, Part 2. Okay? Now, the greater righteousness in, um, that we discussed previously was righteousness um, that's largely related to law, commandment, judgments, statutes, and it's righteousness unto our fellow man. Okay? The second part, interesting, I kind of noticed this as I was going through, is more righteousness that is focused towards God. So I'm going, to, I'm going to call this first part, the Sermon's Core, Part 2. Three illustrations of greater righteousness in good works done toward God. Let me get my Bible open here. So Jesus is teaching about good works, which were a big deal. And they still are a big deal, but in a very different way. And we'll see that as we go along. Jesus now teaches about good works. And namely, we're talking about uh, charity or giving to the poor, prayer, fasting. Now, this is not meant to be a complete list of good works. Okay, There are other good works out there, the good works that God has set forth for us to do. But like the previous section where we looked at those six illustrations, they're meant as a sampling. Okay, a sample that's used to illustrate a concept and an approach of how good works are to be offered up to God rather than used to enhance our status among men. Okay? 
In each of these three illustrations, right, that's giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting, Jesus describes the all-too-common, and these are his words, hypocritical approach, and he contrasts that with an approach that is from the heart. Okay? And in this, he uses a very simple technique we can use for testing our own motivations. So this word hypocrite, it's a Greek word, although we use it in English, it is a Greek word, and it literally means actor, okay, an actor. So when we read through this section of scripture, we'll have the idea of one who is playing a role, if you will, and as actors do, playing a role that is not necessarily a reflection of one's own character, but of some character that you'd like to be or a character that you think you should play, so forth. So in Jesus' examples, this actor, this person who is a hypocrite, plays his role to be seen doing it by other people. Now, why someone would you know, want others to see them uh, fasting or praying uh, is kind of not part of our culture, and it's, you might think, weird, but it was a big deal back then. We'll take a short look at some of that. Why would people do that? Well, perhaps it was to feed their own personal vanity. It could uh, improve their social status. You know, if you're perceived as a righteous man, you might get in on some good business deals. Um, they might be deceiving themselves that these righteous acts kind of tip the scales of judgment in their favor thus making up for some unresolved sin or other issues in their lives. We don't really know. We don't really know the depth of the heart. And that's probably a good thing, too. I mean, uh, there are a number of things that go on in the heart that I think we're all very grateful that other people don't really know. Now, as an antidote to this hypocrisy or this role-playing, if you will, Jesus proposes the idea that we do these things in private or in secret as an act that takes place between us and God, a spiritual matter. And that's why I thought these could be characterized as righteousness unto God. Okay? And that's, it's a very interesting concept and one that you see elsewhere in the scriptures, I can think of a number of places, I'm not going to go to them, but the idea being that God sees everything, and God can tell a lot about you, and he can tell a lot about me, but what, by what we do when nobody else is looking, what we say when we're alone in the car, <laughs> how we really think about people, what we, what we do in those, those moments when no one's looking, no one's looking. And uh, I can't know. I can't know about you, and you can't know about me, right? No one else in here can know that part of you. And I might be able to fool you. You might be able to fool me. I might be able to fool everybody in this room. I might even be able to deceive myself, right? And that, that's a little harder, a little harder to deceive yourself, but it's possible. But I cannot fool God. 
He knows what's really going on. Now we're going to read through this section together, okay? And that would be starting in Matthew 6, verse 1. And as we go through these, I want you to notice something about each of them, because they all have one aspect of them that is similar and consistent throughout. In each of these examples, Jesus ends with the phrase, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So let's just take a look at these, starting in Matthew 6, and we'll read verses 1 through 4, generosity and giving. Of course, he's got an introductory phrase here. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on their streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, so we are supposed to give to the needy, he's not saying don't do it. So when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. I could probably go on and on with a lot of background here, but I'm going to give you a few little bits of information about how people did things back then. To the Jewish people of the time, um, charity to the poor was a big deal, very, very important. In fact, the word that they used for this charity, almsgiving, giving to the poor, It was the same word in their language as the word used for righteousness. They were that synonymous with one another. And they tended to view this and and other good works as a means to, if you will, gain merit with God. Kind of those scales of justice concept I touched on a little earlier. And often as a way to publicly demonstrate their superior status economically and spiritually. So here Jesus instructs us to kind of test the compassion in our hearts by continuing to do this deed, as he says, when you give to the needy, not saying don't do any of that stuff, but to do it in secret before God alone. So let's read the next section, which is on prayer. Actually, that one's a little longer. That's verses 5 through 15. So this is Jesus' second example, good works unto God, which is prayer. And when you pray, verse 5, do not be like the hypocrites. Think of the actor, the idea of acting and playing a role. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father, who is unseen. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Then he goes on, and he's going to give them an example of prayer to the Father. This, then, is how you should pray or could pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we, have, as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then he makes some comments about that after the fact, saying, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sin. Now, prayer was another one of these things that was a really, really big deal among the people of the day, the Jewish people of the day. Jesus describes the wrong way to pray, okay? And then he offers some guidelines regarding the right way to pray. So prayer was a top priority. It was top priority for the Jewish people of the day. In fact, they had a lot of very formalized prayers. They had a prayer for when they got up. They had a prayer before each meal. There were prayers in connection with light, kindling of fire, seeing lightning, the new moons, a comet. They had a prayer for when it rains. They had a different prayer for when it storms. They had a prayer for when they would see the sea, the ocean, a lake, a river, a prayer for receiving good news, on using new furniture, on entering or leaving a city. Now, they also had set times for prayer, 9 a.m., 12 noon, and 3 p.m. So, we read that example of they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, which is an idea that's so alien to us, it's hard to even really think, why would anyone do that? Um, so they had these set prayer times, okay? Let's say it's 12 noon, all right? You're on a busy street corner at noon. You would simply begin to pray. And the, and the Jewish people prayed like this. They would pray like that. Their hands up in the air and they'd be standing. So they'd stop at a street corner and they'd just start praying. So if it's 12 o'clock, I would imagine, and I, you know, I think what was going on, people would conveniently manage to find themselves on busy street corners when they wanted people to see them praying at 12 noon, for example. Um, you know, you might be walking along and say, hmm, oh, it's 12. That Mordecai certainly seems to just happen to be on the street corner at the stroke of 12, more days than not. Wow, that, that guy can really pray, can't he? He can really pray up a storm. I'm sure God hears him. I know I can. So it, it sets up an environment where, yeah, making a big deal of your, your prayers would be very, it would just happen. Again, I bring that out because it's one of those things where you think, it's just weird, why would anyone pray out in public? Because you think of someone getting down on their knees and, you know, praying in, in the way that we tend to. Of course, you've got now, we've got Muslims coming into the country, and that's exactly what they do. Although they don't have three, they would have five. But it's basically the same concept. Now, I'm not saying that they're all hypocrites. I'm just saying they have these scheduled times of prayer. So it's something that is alien to us, but it's out there. Now, I just want to throw in a caveat there that, yeah, there's a time for public prayer. You know, worship services, when we gather together as a group, often we start in prayer. But Jesus is instructing us that our prayers are primarily to be unto God with a sincere heart, not playing a role for the purpose of others to see us. When there's no one to show off for, you're really going to be the real you. Now, personally, I would think that if you were going to try and um, show off to God in prayer, in private, you'd feel kind of weird and ridiculous and just really stupid. 
Now, I don't know. I'm sure that there are people out there that can pull that off, but I think trying to show off to God in private, just that, you know, you know, he's the only one who can hear you. It just wouldn't be the same. So Jesus, as we read, gave us an example of what I would call a heartfelt prayer, a personal prayer. It was more of an outline. I don't think that he means for us to recite those specific words each time we pray and say nothing else, and that's not his example in his own life or the examples of the example of the apostles. And this is, of course, called the Lord's Prayer. And it shows us a good balance of intimacy with our Creator, speaking to God as our Father, who loves us as his children, with respect and reverence for him as the supreme head of all things. We acknowledge his sovereign will. And uh, as my wife mentioned when we were talking over this, a special emphasis on forgiveness and reconciliation. So, the third is fasting. That's verses 17 and 18. Jesus says, when you fast. So once again, he's not saying, don't do these things. He's just saying, I want you to do them in a different way, with a different motivation, with a different heart. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their face to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that you will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now, fasting is a good thing. It's a good thing for drawing close to God, but not if you're doing it to show off. Trying to make a big deal to other people about how spiritual you are. Okay? Now, a little bit of background, not a lot. The Jewish people of the time had basically these two semi-official days of fasting, which would be Mondays and Thursdays. And you might think, whoa, that's a lot of fasting. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of fasting. Uh, so they had these two days, Mondays and Thursdays. Conveniently, these were also market days. Okay? So those are the days when all the people would be coming in from the surrounding small towns and farms to bring in their uh, vegetables and meats and all those kind of things that farmers do. And that, of course, meant that there'd be this tremendously expanded audience for your fasting. Okay? Weird as it seems, uh, people did this kind of stuff. Um, they would take, as Jesus mentioned here, deliberate steps to see, to show, and make it very obvious to others that they were fasting. They would walk through the streets with their hair all messed up, very disheveled, with clothes deliberately soiled and disarrayed. Again, Jesus says, yeah, fast unto God, not to an audience. Fast, but unto God, not to an audience, okay? Because you're not an actor playing a role. And that's the heart of what he's getting at with the Sermon on the Mount. Don't just go through the motions and be an actor. Let these things change you. Let the law be written on your heart. Do your good works unto God. Now, like in the, uh, in the previous section of the sermon, where there were six illustrations of law and judgment, um, there were a lot of rules, obligations, 
social expectations. And Jesus was basically just slashing and burning his way through all these things. They were the traditions of men. Now, specifically here, with these three examples, okay, of generosity, fasting, prayer, God does not give rules about how often to fast, except for the Day of Atonement. He does not have any rules about how long you should pray, how often you should pray. Neither does he have any rules about how much you should give to others, the poor. So people come up with rules. Funny, because we all, we live in a society that's very much, you know, break down all the rules, rebel. And, and, but people do like rules. Even the people who are rebelling, they like rules as much as anyone else, because rebels all tend to dress in the same clothes, if you've noticed. That's kind of a rule. People are just like that. That's just the way people are. Now, all this, you know, is interesting background, you know, talking about what, Jews of the day did. And it kind of explains why Jesus would get in their face about this stuff and criticize them. But for this group here, I'm going to assume that everybody in this room basically understands this concept and puts it into practice, and you do these things privately before God. So I say that because I don't see this as a big problem for us. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount. It's just something that Jesus thought was important. So I think this is definitely preaching to the choir. I don't think that tooting your own horn really is a big problem among God's people. If anything, we're a little too reticent and, and, and shy about spirituality. But really, our key takeaway and the concept that we want to get from this, the, con- and the idea of getting a concept is that we can apply it in other areas because there are other good works to be done. And there are other opportunities to be a hypocrite and to go through things as an actor. The concept of Jesus itemizing all this bad behavior and our takeaway is that we should remain humble and reverent before God who knows our hearts and motivations and apply this in all things and in all good works. And there's, you know, like I said, this is not a complete list of all good works. There are other things to do. We've had a sermon on that in the past year. You can refer back to that um, if you want info on that. I'll gladly talk to you after services. I have a couple of questions for myself, and I'll share them with you. Okay, well, what does this say about legitimate spiritual discipline? Legitimate spiritual discipline. Okay. Well, I think that's actually rather important. I know that some people are very good at it, and they... They set goals and expectations for themselves with regard to fasting, with regard to prayer, with regard to generosity to the poor and other good works. Hospitality is one that just pops into my mind right off the bat. And you can make rules for yourself and proactively try to develop habits of righteousness. You could say, well, I'm going to make a pact with myself that I will pray X or, you know, fast more often and set goals for yourself. And that's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that is spiritual discipline. When Paul says, I discipline my body and I discipline myself, that's the kind of thing I imagine that he would have to do. But when we start thinking that following our own rules about how often or how long we do this or that, 
When we start thinking that following our own rules makes us righteous or, a, you know, kind of changes the balance of judgment for other sins that we have in our lives, we have a problem. We have a problem with logic. We have a problem with how God thinks. When we start judging others based on how well they measure up to our rules, then we have a bigger problem. When we try and force others to follow our rules and expectations, well, you get the picture, right? It just gets worse. Spiritual discipline is okay, but it can be done in the wrong way. And I imagine that the people, uh, the Jewish people there that were being criticized by Christ, I am pretty sure that all these things started off with a good goal in mind, that we'd be more this way, more that way. But it gets out of control. Another question that I think is always worth discussing is reward. Is seeking a reward a good thing? Is it a godly thing? You'll notice that Jesus ended each of these three examples with this phrase. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. I think it's a good question to ask. I've, I've heard it asked. Isn't the whole idea of doing something for reward, like, lesser? It's ungodly. It's not as, as good, you know? You should just do good for the sake of doing good. Shouldn't we simply do good works for the sake of doing good itself or, you know, because you want to be more like God or, or whatever? Well, the short answer I'm going to give you is no. Not according to a very good authority, Jesus Christ. Because he talks about reward a lot. He talks about reward a lot. Now, reward is different from salvation. And again, if you want to go into that topic, I'd be more than happy to. But for the sake of uh, keeping to the point, I'm not going to. But reward is something that is a little different from salvation. The idea of doing something with no thought of reward sounds noble. But I don't believe that it should be applied to rewards that God has promised. And that's the key difference, I believe, here. God's promises. Because without looking forward to these rewards that God promises, really life is without purpose and goals. Without joys to be attained with nothing to anticipate and look forward to. And if you want to take it to an extreme, you know, all action is meaningless or everything is the same or it's all very flattened. Every day the same as the next. And it really it's kind of an apathetic. It has the potential to be apathetic. The key is that that is not how God thinks. That can be how we think. Oh, well, you know, I should never think of reward. That's a little bit of self-righteousness. God doesn't talk like that. God talks about reward. He talks about it an awful lot. Why? Because God has purpose. God has plans. God has goals, and he has rewards in mind. The key is, what kind of rewards are you looking forward to? And Jesus talks about that a little bit. I'm going to kind of jump ahead, but we'll jump back. What kind of rewards are we talking about here? Well, I think the first reward is satisfaction. 
the joy and happiness of knowing that you have done well. Think of the parable of the talents. At the end, when they all come forward, the master, who obviously represents God, or Christ in the seat of judgment, says to the ones who've done well, he says, well done, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's happiness, that's the NIV, or your master's joy, that's the King James. The second, and I think this is one that we dwell upon an awful lot as a, as a church, and it's good, and it's very important, is increased responsibility. Well, that's your reward. You get even more to do. Again, a great example, the parable of the talents, okay? The guy who did well, he got more to do. If you think about it in life, uh, how we apply this as, as people, you know, not on the God plane judgment level, the brilliant student in the class gets the harder assignments, does he not? Or she? Right? The talented musician. Well, if you have a talented musical student, you give them the harder pieces to do, not the easier pieces. Well, you're great. You're great at, at playing the piano. Well, I'm going to give you the easiest piece in the book because you've earned it. That's not how things work. You're, you're good. You get more to do. Sports, okay? The guy who's on the second string, or the girl, if they do well, do they go down to the third string so they only get to play the people who are much less than them so they can show off? No, you move them up to the first string, right? You move them up to the first string. And so it is with the disciples of Christ. Okay? And so it is with the first fruits. Third, third reward. And there's more. Again, it's not complete. You get to see God, be with God in his presence without fear. Without fear. You know, there's this part of you, and it's built into all of us, desperately wants that, like a child wants the Father. You want the Father. And that's part of your reward, that you can be in the presence of God without fear. Okay, moving along then. I told you that he, Jesus did talk about this, and, and that's actually the next section. Now let's read it, verses 19 through 21. He says to them, and this is moving along in the sermon here, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Again, a little background here. Back in the good old days, or the bad old days, I kind of think they were bad old days, but back in, the, back in the day, back before the days of cash and uh, credit cards and uh, 401k plans, people had to stash their wealth in the form of things, like a fabulous set of clothing, okay, uh, homes, Jewelry and stuff like that. That's just how people amassed wealth. They really didn't have banks. It was a different world. So stashing your wealth was a very material thing. And I think people got, went to great lengths and, and were very creative in ways to kind of, how can I keep all this wealth in a way that it doesn't get destroyed or stolen? It's worth pondering on. All these things, you know, your clothes, your home, 
fade and wear out. You know, as a homeowner, you know that if you don't take care of that house within within a couple of decades, it's just going to be completely ramshackled, broken down, and worth almost nothing. Inflation, I suppose you could look at inflation. You know, we have our cash, we have our banks, but inflation can eat away at your money. Anyway, all these things fade and they wear out. Even if you care for them and keep them in mint condition, you wear out. You run out of days, out of life. You die, and none of your stuff goes with you. Okay? What does go with you is what Jesus is talking about here is the godly character that you have developed in life. How you have written his law upon your heart and your mind. How you have developed the fruits of the Holy Spirit in your life. How you have walked in the good works that he has prepared in advance for you to do. So let's read verse 22. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, and the NIV says unhealthy, but clouded and clear is is a good um, way of reading these. And you see that in the King James. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? I think what he's getting at here is that money, wealth, can cloud your vision. Money and wealth can cloud your vision. He's using a metaphor here of the eye. People used to think of the eye as the window of the soul. And that the analogy would be, well, if your eyes are clear, the light can get in and penetrate and change you as a person, whereas if your eyes are cloudy, and I think the example here would be clouded by money, it's not going to happen. The light of God is going to have a harder time getting in there. Money does cloud your vision. The solution, the solution, which is part of the sermon content here, is generosity and godly stewardship of the blessings that God has given you. Okay? It's about focus, and it's about what's in your heart. All right, let's read the next section. That would be verses 25 through 32 about worry and anxiety. So starting in verse 25, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. 
Well, in our day, I think we talk more about money. And like I said, they tended to think of wealth in these very material terms, clothes and stuff. Worry and anxiety. Great enemy of faith. Worrying about what's going to happen to me. One of the great enemies of faith. Why do people care about money so much? I care about money. Don't you? Yeah, I care about money. Why do we care about it so much? I mean, I think we have to. We have to be good stewards. You know? But why do people care about money so passionately? Well, there are plenty of reasons. Uh, the ones that come to mind first for me would be power, vanity, pleasure. But I think that one of the most common, and this would apply to people who don't have a lot of it, as well as people who do have it, is fear. Worry. Wanting to know where my next meal is coming from. Will I be able to pay the mortgage this month or the rent? What will happen to me? What if things don't go well? What if things go badly? Once you start worrying, it just becomes a snowball. And you can roll, and it goes downhill. All right? What can I do to control events? How can I use my money to control things so that nothing goes wrong? That's how we think. It's part of our survival mechanism, and I think it's part of how we're hardwired. The trick is to not let it override what God wants us to do with our lives spiritually, preparing for the kingdom. As I said, fear and worry, it's the opposite of faith. It's the opposite of faith. And, you know, by way of extension, trust in money is incompatible with trust in God. As Jesus said, you can't serve both God and money. Now, caveat, I think, is important here. Laziness and refusal to work is also incompatible with God. Okay? But worrying about money and worrying about what will happen tomorrow, and will God take care of me tomorrow? Will? Will God take care of you tomorrow? Yeah. So Jesus uses uh, what's really a classic rhetorical technique. He compares two things, and he says basically, well, if so, in the lesser case, you know, with birds and plants and these little things, and God takes care of them, how much more so in a greater case? And that greater case, of course, is you, his children. Then he says, seek first the kingdom of God. And if you think about it, this sermon on the mount that Jesus is giving is how you seek the kingdom of God. He's giving you the guideline. He's saying, seek first the kingdom of God. And these are some of the things that you can do to make it happen. Okay. The next section I'm going to call, Everything Leads to Judgment Before God. And Jesus is now going to start wrapping up the sermon with a nice conclusion. Okay, it's not short, but it's nice. The point of this pursuit of greater righteousness, writing the laws of God on your heart and on your mind, looking into the motivations for why you do what you do unto God, your good works, your thoughts about reward, 
All these things are part of preparing yourself to be judged and rewarded by God. Preparing for the kingdom. But along the way to talking about judgment, Jesus makes a few key points about how judgment affects the way we treat one another. How judgment affects our relationships. And he compares human judgment with God's. First, he takes a look at human judgment. Matthew 7, verse 1 through 5. Great saying, often taken out of context, do not judge or else you will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust, your brother's eye, and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. And that word hypocrite, playing the role, you know, without having the soul. <laughs> Just walking through the motions. A hypocrite, an actor. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The word judgment here is krinos, Greek word, again. And it has a number of... Um, I could, I could come up with a number of synonyms in the English language. Uh, it means discernment, analysis. And those are good things, discernment and analysis, being able to size up a situation. It also means condemnation and vengeance, which are not good in the hands of those whom can't, you know, in the hands of those who can't handle it, which would be you and me. Condemnation and vengeance. Mm, those are not good when it comes to human judgment. And Jesus touched on this, if you, if you hearken back to the first section of the Sermon on the Mount when he talked about murder and the spirit of murder. Okay? I know some of you weren't here. That's why I made that little handout. But he talked about that spirit of condemnation and vengeance, that's God's job. Okay? That's God's job. I think what's important here, and the reason I said that it's often misinterpreted is, the goal of this teaching isn't just to get us all to shut up and stop saying anything and never say anything to anyone and leave everybody alone and, you know, let everyone go and do their own thing. And I think that's how people like to interpret this. You can get people who say, well, you know, well, I don't judge anybody, so I don't deserve any judgment. Well, that's just not the way it's going to work out, friend. That's not the way it's going to work out. Think of the line about hypocrite. You hypocrite first, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So the goal isn't just to get us to shut up, say nothing, although that is a good option many times but actually to fix our own lives so that we can legitimately help others. Take the plank out of your eye. Help your neighbor get the speck out of his own eye. But you have to be ready. You have to take care of your own life. 
And I think that's an important thing to consider because judgment is just how we're made. I think as spiritual creations created in the image of God, um, judgment is hardwired into humans. That's sure what I see. We're hardwired to judge. It's a, what I want to call a God-level function of the mind, to judge. But you were designed to judge righteous judgment. Or you were designed to develop, I should say, to develop righteous judgment. Let's just take a quick look at Galatians 6, verse 1. When it comes to taking the speck out of your, your brother's eye, I think it's just it's, it's taking it to a, too much of a black and white to say, well, we never say anything to anyone about anything. Galatians 6, verse 1 talks about the spirit in which you would be able to approach your brother about a speck in his eye. First, having dealt with your own life, a plank in your own eye, Galatians 6, verse 1 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. With love. Easier said than done. Easier said than done. But you cannot help your brother or sister without the ability to discern and make judgments on the basis of God's word and God's truth. But it is not your role to condemn. Because you don't know enough to judge on that level. That's something that is reserved for for God. But having good judgment is a godly thing. and something we need to develop. And Jesus gives us some guidelines here. Okay, Deal with yourself. Prepare yourself. When you approach your brother, you approach him gently. To restore, not to condemn, not to put him down, not to exalt yourself. Verse 6. And he says something that seems a little enigma, enig, enigmatic. Yeah, we'll look. A little out of place. He says, Do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw, to, throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. It's kind of a warning, I believe. Even constructive criticism from a pure heart and a clear eye, if you will, will likely be rejected by those who are outside the brotherhood. So it's going to be very difficult to take these concepts outside to people who don't really think on this level. People who are ungodly, unspiritual, and or deceived by false teaching. So it's a little bit of a warning here. Just be careful. Don't give to dogs what is sacred. Don't throw your pearls before swine. Be careful. Those are just metaphors or analogies of people who are outside. People haven't really bought into the concept. Be careful. 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 That's all. I think, you know, I just wanted to touch on that because it struck me as kind of a Odd saying right there, but it makes sense in context of what just immediately preceded it. Let's read verses 7 through 11. Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. 
He's talking here about how God treats us. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks us for a fish, will he give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. And this sums up the law and the prophets. So ask and seek, knock, and the door will be opened. Ask, or, or sorry, was that? Uh, seek and you shall find, ask and you shall get, knock and the door will be opened. And this is how God treats us. He's very generous and very open-handed with us. And it's something that we should think about when we consider, hopefully, we, you know, if we're going to ever approach someone in that Galatians 6 verse 1 sort of a way, I think it would be very important to think, well, how does God deal with me? That's probably a good paradigm for me to apply when I deal with other people. God doesn't strike people down with lightning bolts. He doesn't. He's gentle and patient. He gives. He's generous. When people ask, he helps. He gives. Of all the people that you know, you know yourself the best, hopefully. You know the problems in your life. And hopefully you are aware of the great patience and gentleness and generosity that God shows you. So that's a great paradigm for dealing with other people. And he kind of sums that up there in verse 12. So in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. But this sums up the law and the prophets. That's the golden rule. As Jesus explained earlier, to be forgiving, sorry, to be forgiven, you need to be forgiving. I think to be treated with kindness, act kindly, etc., etc., etc. These are principles that he wants us to apply more than just you know, the ways that he gives us, but in other things as well. Someone might say, well, I'm hard on myself, therefore I can be hard on other people. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but some people think that way. Yep, I'm hard on myself, so I'm justified in being hard on other people. Well, to that I would say back up to the previous point and consider your dealings with God, your Creator, your Father. And consider how kind He is to you. How patient and gentle He is with you. He's the example. Not you. He's the example. All right, getting close to the conclusion here. Um, I have a little line here in my notes that says, there are only two ways you can go. And then I wrote this, and then I was listening to classic rock, and I heard Robert Plant, and I've had his <laughs> voice in my mind all week singing Stairway to Heaven. But there are only two ways you can go. And he gives the three illustrations here. Two ways. And in this, the, the choice is the same as it's always been, the very beginning. Okay? I set before you life and death. And the Sermon on the Mount is all about setting before you the ways of life. Choose life, is what God says. Choose life. Um, your decision before God's truth um, and God's way is binary. Meaning it's either on or off. It's either up or down. In or out. There is not a third way. 
Verses 13 and 14, Jesus goes on to say, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. You might think, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is pretty straightforward. You might think, well, yeah, this is going to convince a lot of people. But it doesn't. True disciples, true followers will always be few. Kind of what we're told in the scriptures. Our success in preaching the word of God isn't measured in numbers, thankfully. And when you consider the narrow and the wide gate, writing the law of God on your heart and on your mind is challenging. Reading on in verse 15 through 23, watch out for false prophets. Kind of shooting off in a different direction. We'll take a look at that. He says, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, we'll recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Listen, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, referring back to the false prophets here, of course, by their fruit you will recognize them. In the same vein, he carries on and says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And perhaps that person who says, Lord, Lord, is the actor. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoer. Here and elsewhere in the scriptures, we're warned that people will come into the church into the world, if you will, people will come into the church with bad ideas. Uh, perhaps they'll come in with some fantastic new tradition of men you know, that they've cooked up. Maybe they'll come in with some outrageous heresy for our own sake. Thinking here of judgment, we will have to judge. We will have to judge them based on on the fruits of their lives. Okay? Are they pursuing the will of the Father? I think an obvious question there is, well, how would I know what God's will is? Someone comes at me, they start yelling at me real loud, telling me that they know God's will. I think a lot of times your first response is, okay. You have to judge. And how do you judge? Judge them by the fruits. You judge them by, are they doing the will of God? How do you know the will of God? Well, we just, we just spent 55 minutes talking about it. And the previous section on the first part of the sermon, like, of, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, that's the will of God. That's what God wants us to do. Now, I think there's more to it. It's a great outline. That's how you know the will of God. Are they doing these things? Are they doing these things? You know, if someone were to come and do a miracle, like, heal, be healed. But they're just an actor. you got to wonder, well, why would God let them do that? I don't but it can happen. 
It happened in Jesus' own day. People would do that. Exercising demons. and They weren't disciples. So you judge people by their fruits. And the fruits are here in the Sermon on the Mount. Great reference. <laughs> it's a great place to start. But I think, I hope I've made the point. It's not a place to stop. It's a great place to start and take these concepts and apply them elsewhere. So you might have said all the right words, and I, I think this applies to us here, but maybe, maybe it's you. You might have said all the right words. You may be in the right place at the right time. But is it your personal goal to write the laws and commandments of God on your heart, on your mind? What about the fruits of the Spirit? Do you have a plan? Do you have a, a, a plan to walk in the good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do? Because I believe that the concept of the Sermon on the Mount is preparing yourself for the kingdom. Do you have a plan? Do you have goals? Are you working towards something? Are you preparing yourself for your place in the family of God and the kingdom of God? Do you need guidelines? Do you need a to-do list? Well, the Sermon on the Mount is a great place to start. Let's finish off reading verses 24 through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, these are Jesus' words, not mine, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and they beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and they beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. Let's just finish off here reading the last two verses. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. 